You're listening to Radio Ed, a University of Denver podcast. We're your hosts, Lauren Fultenberg, Alyssa Hurst, and Nicole Militello. In today's episode, we're talking about one of the biggest sporting events of the year, the Super Bowl. While some people are looking forward to the commercials, others watch for the love of the game. But when Kim Gorgans watches the Super Bowl, she notices something else, the hard hits and the lasting impact they could have on these athletes. Gorgans is a clinical psychology professor who researches brain injuries. She stopped by the studio to talk about the risks that come with playing football and why this conversation doesn't just apply to sports. Thanks so much for joining us. Nicole, thanks for having me. I'm curious what it's like from your perspective as someone who is a traumatic brain injury expert. What goes through your mind when you watch the Super Bowl? Uh, To watch the pageantry and the brutality of it all. Uh, Well, I think like everybody, I'm struck by the remarkable athleticism. The difference in my perspective, I think, is that uh, I have a lot of relationships with retired NFL players, some of whom have one, two, or three Super Bowl rings, and their story is very different, right? It's not the the glamour of a highly publicized sporting event with, you know, billions of dollars in advertising. Their experience is uh, most often being scared and depressed and, you know, to have a third knee replacement on the way and to feel scared about the runway they're looking at for the rest of their lives. Do you think that they're really aware of what they're getting themselves into when they join the NFL, when it comes to like brain injuries and things like that? It's such a great question, and this is really where the field is right now, that we don't know enough about how to predict who will have these relatively low-frequency but terrible outcomes. So that might be dementing disease, for example, or even the kinds of uh, more likely consequences like uh, pituitary gland changes and changes to the hippocampus in the brain, for example. Those are much more common, and there are behavioral problems associated with that, but it's not dementing disease like we've talked about. So we don't know how to tell players how to be safe other than don't get your head knocked around, and we don't know how to identify the people who are most likely to end up in that circumstance. Okay, so with the research that we have now, do you think that there needs to be a bigger emphasis on educating, or do you think that that there's already a good job of doing that out there? Uh, The NFL, to their credit, does a fairly great job of protecting their athletes. They're really smart about um, preseason and uh, game season policies. For example, uh, just this year, there was a report that their preseason practice concussion rate went up 44% from last year. And so it's being debated right now in their collective bargaining agreement whether they should get rid of contact in next year's preseason practices. Like contact altogether? Altogether. Interesting. So the NFL responds really quickly. They may have been forced to do that, right? Their hand may have been forced. But they are very protective of their players. The, the real beef with the NFL has been that for players after retirement, mm-hmm. which is right in the long term, we're going to have uh, more health complaints, chronic illnesses, that that's when the NFL really turns their back on them. That's a complaint that players have. Do you think that um, there is a safe way to play a high impact sports like football, like maybe with different helmet technology or equipment? Uh, It's so funny because there's really a gold rush in the equipment space to develop a safer helmet and uh, in the kind of coaching and athletic space to design a safer way to play. So there's a few really interesting pieces of data. 
uh, to this point. So one is that we've developed a whole slew of new helmet technologies and mouth guard technologies, and some of them actually increase the risk for injury. So one that was really notable was, and you may have seen this in youth sports for a while, was like a set of padding that was worn on the outside of the helmet, and they found like, oh, this increases neck strain exponentially relative to regular helmets, which makes a lot of sense because the surface area is much bigger. And then when they did research with fluid-filled bladders inside of professional helmets, they found that the severity of concussions was much greater. So for each step that we take towards figuring out the biomechanics of injury and how to better protect players, like we take some unintended step backwards where we make things accidentally worse. Right. We were just reading an article in the New York Times about Stanford has a team trying to come up with a helmet that can reduce concussions. Right. I think they were using the fluid-filled right. helmet as well. Right. So there's like fluid-filled bladders, air-filled, there's internal, external mouth guards, neck protection, right? It really is like a gold rush to find a really viable technology so that players would have the peace of mind of knowing that uh, to the degree possible, their protective equipment is doing its job. Right. And we've also discussed um, the conversation about whether it's just a giant concussion or two that could affect the player versus getting multiple hits right. over the course of their time playing football. What do you think about that? Uh, this is probably the most important point of this whole conversation today, that there really is no research to suggest that one or two isolated concussions has any relationship with long-term poor outcomes. There is a relationship between even a single really big injury and long-term disease. And the other area of real concern is the accumulation of what we call subconcussive blows. And these are uh, in the area of 25G impact, which is like getting punched in the face, but it's a much lower G-force impact than a traditional helmet-to-helmet -helmet hit. The accumulation of those kinds of blows is stunning, and I can share these two pieces of data from high school and then from college. So this research embeds what are called accelerometers in helmets. So these measure force of impact direction of travel, the biomechanics of the impact itself. So uh, research that looked at football players, so this was in a single season, measured an average G-force of impact. This is not a concussive impact. This is just an average force okay. of impact over just the course like of- Just your regular tackle. Totally, okay. exactly. Over the course of the whole season was 25 G. So that was like the absolute average. You can imagine that they were much higher than that and some much lower. What's even more interesting, though, is that the average number of 25G impacts was 774. And in that research, one player reported 3,700 25G-plus impacts in a single season. The same research, looking at college players, finds a slightly lower G-force of impact, about 20 to 22, but double that many impacts in a season. So in that research, it was 1,444. The accumulation of that many blows over the number of seasons that, let's say, a professional athlete will have played, right? This is someone who started, let's say it's football. They started playing sandlot football and peewee, and then they were in youth sports and uh, chassa at the high school level, and then they were in NCAA. Uh, they have, in some cases, right, 20 to 30 years of the accumulation of these kinds of impacts. So we're talking about, in some cases, hundreds of thousands of blows. 
And that chronic inflammation is more likely related to these negative long-term outcomes. Wow. So like you said, this conversation is super important, not only for professional athletes, but especially for youth sports. And That's right. kids as young as five and six are playing football. Right. As a brain injury researcher, would you let your kid play youth football? <laughs> this was such a big deal at our house, too. Uh, I did a TED Talk in 2010 when my son was much younger, and the image from that TED Talk was him wrapped in bubble wrap, right? And it was as much a TED Talk about neurotic parenting as it was about, like, youth sports injury. Your Twitter handle uh, is bubble wrap is brain, bubble right? bubble wrap brain, that's right. So uh, I am so thoughtful about, like, his brain and how to manage risk, right? There's some... 99% of the risk we're exposed to is outside of our control. So I feel more responsible for that 1%. I tried to steer him towards sports that minimized exposure to the kinds of rotational force injuries. So things like uh, full contact football and full contact hockey, for example. So I pushed him towards ultimate Frisbee, where, of course, the benefits of running around and um, team membership and cohesion and the kinds of... Um, you know, spirit of play and gamesmanship were all there, but the risk for injury was much lower than it is for some of those traditionally uh, contact rotational injury sports like football, rugby, hockey, okay. soccer in some cases too. Do you think that there's a specific age where it's okay to start playing tackle football? Well, in the research, and I find this, uh, there's a debate in the research, but I find the research on contact sports before age 12 being uh, more associated with longer-term poor outcomes to be pretty compelling. The argument is that if you poll among all of these retired athletes who have poor outcomes, so let's say they have dementing disease or any kind of physiological problem related to the accumulation of their probably subconcussive injuries, but some kind of brain injury, uh, when you poll them, the folks who started playing much earlier than 12 are overrepresented in that group relative to the rest of the 99% of players who don't have these poor long-term outcomes. So we don't know that that's a causal link. And there's an equally strong debate about training kids to play contact sports when they're much younger so they grow up in a safer style of play and they reduce their risk for injury in the long term. The problem with younger kids, though, with contact sports is that the size discrepancies are so huge. So you see that with the G-force of impact being greater for high school relative to college, and that's even greater for junior high, where some kids have hit puberty and are uh, giants relative to their prepubescent peers right. who are playing on the same team. I feel like now concussions are so common in sports that people don't actually take it that seriously. Right, exactly. And for younger athletes to feel the pressure to get back to the mm -hmm. game, right? That we really incentivize them to discount their symptoms. And when you look at the data, the rate at which athletes describe themselves as being symptom-free versus the length of time where any one of these injury biomarkers that we're only just now beginning to track, there's no relationship between those two things. So uh, it's... And especially for someone who sustains another injury not long after the first injury, right? That extends the injury from the uh, the recovery from the second injury. And in cases with younger kids could be potentially fatal. Uh, the stakes couldn't be higher. And these are easy things, right? For social networks to rally around your friend who's had a concussion is 
probably part of what you do anyway. And here's the medical neuropsychological advice that says keep it up. Interesting. So the New York Times also did a piece looking at the popularity of football over the past decade. And one of the lines that stuck out is nationally high school participation in 11-man football has fallen more than 10% since 2009. Um, We have seen football evolve over the past years with all the brain injury research. Do you think football is going anywhere? Well, interestingly, the change of policies in professional football, so at the NFL level, when they instituted the crown of helmet rule, that was like 2013, they saw a dramatic reduction in the frequency of concussive injuries during a season. Uh, A few years earlier than that, youth sports developed this heads-up style of play that um, sponsored coaches would teach their players, which is to not lead with their head and to be smart and no spearing. So uh, interestingly, even as uh, recently as last year, data suggests no change in the number of reported youth sport concussions related to training kids to play in a way that doesn't include their head. So it's uh, those data, I think, are discouraging, right? When you think of like, could we even create a game that is safer to play? Uh, I'm not sure whether or not we can. The problem with the conversation, though, is what people hear is that this is about, um, you know, aerobic exercise and sports relative to uh, a sedentary lifestyle. Uh, And it's really not, right, that we know that the benefits of exercise outweigh the risk for potential exposure to injury. But what we really want to do is give someone all of that benefit and reduce the risk as much as possible. So if we could get rid of it almost altogether, that would be great, even for littler kids and uh, they could learn how to tackle when they hit college. Right. And what do you think about the NFL's role in all of this when it comes to the research and how they share it? Uh, The Head, Neck, and Spine Committee really famously was doing a lot of this research for a long time. Uh, And they've taken a lot of heat for withholding that from the players. And I think uh, that uh, there's an element of that that is probably true. What I hear from a lot of NFL players is they felt totally blindsided by this conversation. Like, you know, I was never told that this was uh, a risk for me over the course of play. So, so there may be an element of uh, withholding, maybe even just passive withholding. They have, in response to media pressure, really doubled down on committing to fully transparent research. So the NFL makes millions of dollars of grants available to academic researchers to drive the field forward. So they've responded by really... Um, harnessing a momentum among you know, university folks and research labs to, to do better by the players. Mm-hmm. Even like with that football helmet challenge that they're opening That's up right. to the public to create a new helmet. That's right. Yeah. And when you think about the difference between the NFL and youth sports, so the NFL has been doing helmet research uh, since folks were wearing leather helmets in the 1910s and 20s. So uh, they have this long 100-year history of doing helmet research, and they only just this year started doing the same kind of research on youth sport helmets. So it's like, oh, my God, did we just assume that kids uh, were injured in the same way or that their brains performed in the same way that a 30-year-old professional athlete's brain performs? And It's uh, for everything that we talk about really needing to happen at the NFL level, 
the youth sport movement lags decades. In this case, we're talking about 100 years behind. So we, we could do a lot better on that front, too. Right. And you were even talking about the research here at DU when you're talking about classic symptoms of a concussion, that they might not even be necessarily what you think they are. That's right. That's right. So uh, things like feeling dizzy, which, again, you might attribute to exertion or heat exertion, a really hard training workout. Um, we also see uh, a disorientation in the slightly longer term. So let's say this is the 1 to 14-day window. You see mood change, cognitive change. So people have thinking difficulties. They may have concentration problems or lose math ability, for example. They have a hard time reading without getting headachey. Headache shows up in almost 100% of that population. And those symptoms in an uncomplicated concussion scenario resolve completely inside of, we usually tell people it's 14 days to 30 days. In some folks, it takes a little bit longer, especially if they've pushed themselves way too hard in that early recovery stage, they can prolong their recovery. But most people are gonna get relief from those symptoms in the shorter term. Right, so this research is out there, but now how do you get people to really care about it? You know, a lot of football fans love tuning into their favorite team every Sunday watching. How do you get them to really understand the extent of these brain injuries? Well, here's what is an interesting backstory. So uh, this has been really a latent conversation, I would say, among uh, neuropsychologists and team psychologists and athletic trainers uh, who've seen this, um, I'll call it like the seedy underbelly, right? This is retired players who have these really devastating physical health outcomes. Uh, And that didn't get a whole lot of press for a long time. Interestingly, a group of NFL wives got really scrappy and started to do a little bit more higher profile complaining about that. And there's a double-edged sword there, and I do a lot of work with NFL wives now to uh, walk the line between catastrophizing and drawing too much attention to the plight of their husbands and, right, like really genuinely... um, drawing attention to something that is remiss in the management of players and player health. So they're trying to walk that line. They were the first to really draw attention to this issue because when you just talk about football and the risk for injury in the abstract, it really doesn't land, especially when it's part of uh, everyone's Monday night and Sunday afternoon tradition and they've grown up rooting for their local college football team. And we have a a way that this is part of our the fabric of our culture. So talking about injuries in that sport can be really abstract until you start to hear from your favorite players. And we've seen that over the last 10 years where players are identifying themselves as having these problems. And you've seen some younger players who are very publicly leaving the sport because of their fear of injuries, right? When they hit three or four injuries and they think like, I may have exhausted all of my freebies. So uh, I credit the NFL wives for really driving that momentum to draw attention in just the right way that would hook the public's interest and not oversell it and cast blame. I will say that NFL wives feel a lot of pressure. So what they're really conscious about doing is to uh, not be so shaming about the NFL, right? Like they credit their lifestyles and their uh, husband's careers to the NFL, in this case, to the NFL. And uh, it is really hard for them to feel like 
at the same time, they want to have a larger conversation about, uh, hey, my husband is forgets where he parked the car and he's 37 years old. Or, you know, my husband can't drive. He forgot how to drive and he's 44 years old, right? Like there's a way that um, there's much less support for them. So the tension between right, wanting some attention and uh, resources versus not wanting to uh, condemn the NFL altogether has been really tough. It's probably such a change of lifestyle, too, for them, you know, being in the NFL and having all of this support. And then when they retire, maybe they have a traumatic brain injury and suddenly that support's not there anymore. That's right. And it really is all of the things that happen after a player retires. So we know on the biomarker side that they have much lower levels of a, a hormone called BDNF, which promotes brain growth. So they have lower levels of that hormone. They may or may not have increased levels of these misfolded proteins that predispose folks to dementing disease, but they also develop substance abuse problems related to chronic pain, and they have tremendous uh, musculoskeletal complaints. So it's uh, the adjustment with depression, right, from being on the Super Bowl field to, like, uh checking someone out at Home Depot, right? That's a pretty precipitous decline in terms of your imagined status. So it's it's likely these poor outcomes are some combination of all of those things, right? It's mental illness and depression and mood and stress and pain and uh, other substance use. It's really, for the athletes that I've had the pleasure of working with, it's been really tragic to see uh, the fall. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people don't know about that. Like, you don't hear That's about right. that. That's right. That's right. And again, like the people who would draw attention to it, so the athletes won't themselves. I do a lot of consultation with retired athletes who get in touch because they're scared, right? They'll have forgotten their keys uh, on their way out the door on one morning, and immediately they're thinking because it's part of the national dialogue, like, okay, well, this is it, I guess. This is the start of my dementing disease pathway, and so I'm able to do a lot of reassurance. But over time, right, their risks are different than the general population and really unique to them. And so their wives, who have a front row seat and really bear the brunt of the caregiving, uh, owe a lot to the NFL and want to, at the same time, hold them responsible for uh, what are longer-term management and chronic health and behavioral problems that require a lot greater intensity of resources than the NFL provides. So I also wanted to talk to you about some other research involving traumatic brain injuries that I think a lot of people might not know about. And you actually did an entire TED Talk on this, and that's the connection between traumatic brain injuries and the criminal justice system. Right. So you start right away and you share the statistic that really jumped out to me, that up to 80% of people in the criminal justice system have a TBI. That's right. And that's compared to just the 5% of the general public. That's right. So can you just tell us more about this link and kind of what's behind it? Uh, It's such a great question as to what's behind it. So the link is that you see a dramatic overrepresentation of traumatic brain injury history in people who are in the criminal justice system. So in our research, for example, we're looking at probationers and we're looking at inmates, so county jail inmates. Other research has looked at um, uh, federal prison inmates, uh, Department of Corrections. They looked at uh, parolees, for example. So we have just two categories. We find that that rate statewide in Colorado for adults is 54%, 
and it gets as high from setting to setting as 97%. So the data suggests that there is some kind of, uh, there is a relationship between criminal justice, the risk for criminal justice involvement, and the injury. What's important though, like a quick little sidebar is, uh, one of my favorite research studies looked at the frequency of brain injuries sustained in jail. And uh, it just was like, for anyone who's kind of nerdy about research, they would <laughs> so appreciate this. Uh, this was a study in New York City that added head injury to the electronic health record of the New York City Correctional System. And their control group was the neighboring community emergency rooms. And they found that while incarcerated, the rate of sustaining a brain injury in the New York City correctional system was 50 times higher than it was for the neighboring emergency wow. rooms. So uh, I don't want to make this conversation complete without uh, nodding to how dangerous a setting that is for inmates and for correctional officers just the same. So uh, in terms of what's the link there, because what we do find is that per report, most people's injuries predate their criminal involvement. You see a really characteristic cluster of deficits after, let's say, a frontal lobe brain injury, which is most common. And you see this when people go over the handlebars or get punched in the face or aren't wearing a seatbelt in a car, for example. The really common cluster of deficits includes uh, disinhibition or being really impulsive, poor judgment, poor anger management, irritability, uh, failure to forecast consequences. So you can start to see where someone who maybe has less social support or less robust family support would be at risk for getting themselves into a lot of trouble. What we found is that these folks don't get themselves into a lot of trouble with, uh, you know, high wattage violent crimes. These are folks who are getting picked up for drinking and driving or for drug possession. And then they get stuck in criminal justice. So they have much longer periods of incarceration relative to their peers. And it's not because their crimes were more serious. It's because they've been in there multiple times. So there's a way that the deficits associated with traumatic brain injury create a vulnerability to um, law enforcement problems. Mm -hmm. And it, in the same way that it does with developing a substance abuse problem and mental illness and risk for suicide, that you see this uh, really um, troubling uh, circular relationship between the injury, substance abuse, people who are abusing substances are more likely to sustain a brain injury. People after brain injury are more likely to develop a substance abuse problem. So you see this cycle that becomes really vicious for the folks who are uh, stuck in that system. Mm -hmm. And you also shared that the numbers are a little bit different specifically for women. Right. So what more can you tell us about that? Well, this is a conversation that no one is having. And uh, there's a part of this conversation that is community dwelling women. So this is specifically looking at women who've been exposed to interpersonal violence. And those data, our colleague here on campus, Anne Prince, has really pioneered some of those data. Uh, her data just overall suggests that one in seven women has been exposed to interpersonal violence. But more stunningly, when you poll them, when they hit either an emergency room or a shelter, 90% of them have a history of traumatic brain injury. So in a community-dwelling sample, 
you see this risk for traumatic brain injury history, in a particular, this pattern of repeated injuries. So in that TED Talk from 2018, I described these women as looking just like retired NFL players, right? They have the same kinds of chronic health complaints, but there's no media attention for them. So this is like such an important platform to talk about. In our research, we're looking at those women who are incarcerated and on probation. And what we find is 97% of them have a history of traumatic brain injury. So there's something uniquely vulnerable about some women and their rate of sustaining violence-related multiple traumatic brain injuries is much higher relative to their male peers who are incarcerated. And those kinds of injuries are associated with even poorer outcomes. Mm -hmm. So uh, we're trying to design wraparound programming that might better address the unique vulnerabilities of that population. So going along with this conversation, a new study just came out and researchers found that a majority of people who experience homelessness may have suffered a traumatic brain injury. So this goes right along with the criminal justice system conversation we're talking about, domestic violence. These are huge societal problems. Why do you think that we're starting to learn about all of this right now? I loved this study. So this was a Canadian research study that was reported in The Guardian last month. Uh, and in that research, they looked at uh, U.S., Australia, Canada, Japan, South Korea, and the U.K. So they combined all of those data and found that the rate of traumatic brain injury history among people who are homeless was 53%. So way exaggerated relative to the general population, which for all brain injuries is about 8.5%. For moderate and severe injuries is probably closer to 3 or 4%. So... Uh, we here at the University of Denver with the Burns Center for Housing and Homelessness just launched a study last year to look at this same phenomena. So to look at the overrepresentation of traumatic brain injury among people who are homeless. More importantly, the question that the Guardian article begs, which we're hoping to address, is what is the relationship between the brain injury and homelessness? Mm -hmm. So is there a causal link between having a brain injury and ending up homeless? Or what we also know is true is that being homeless creates a vulnerability to interpersonal violence that is not the case when you live in a home or you have the kinds of uh, psychosocial protective variables. So do most of these folks sustain their brain injury while they're homeless? And nobody really knows that. So we're going to look at those data across the state of Colorado in urban and rural centers interviewing literally every homeless member of four communities across Colorado. We're rolling that out in January this year. Okay, so now that we're aware of this research, what's the next step? What can people do? Well, I love that we can talk about this before we close. So uh, what we know about the stigma for brain injury is that not only is there an emotional cost for the persons with brain injury, but there's a, a tangible cost in healthcare. So we know that uh, healthcare professionals, for example, have greater bias against people with brain injuries relative to people whose limbs are injured. Uh, and we know that that translates into poorer care. So there's a tangible healthcare cost. And then there's the kinds of uh, stigma that employers and friends and families might have, which lead to social isolation, unemployment, unemployability for the person with the brain injury. So it goes beyond just the emotional reaction of not feeling seen in the community. This is an invisible disability, so it's unique in that way. Uh, what 
has worked in research to combat stigma has been, A, education. So that's always been the standard. And I recommend the CDC Heads Up webpage that has great data, especially on mild injuries. And then the U.S. Brain Injury Alliance, it's like usbia.org, has great information about uh, state-by-state resources and statistics, and they have all of the CDC data there. So the first step is education, right? How big a problem is this? How likely is this uh, uh, to crop up in my social circle or in my family? And for countless people out there, it already is in their family, and it may be in their own history. And the second piece of that is to uh, build a social network that includes someone who talks about their brain injury, to normalize the conversation and to be willing to uh, be kind and be patient with someone as they're rehabbing, which can take years and years. Uh, As a rehab psychologist, we talk about rehabilitation being a lifelong process and capitalizing on the plasticity of the brain, right? We're not just going to recover function in that first six months. Uh, but to immerse yourself in that world and the willingness to have the conversation and be open to it and to uh, meet someone where they're at is really immeasurable in terms of the social impact. Interesting. And I'm wondering, too, um, the research out there on Alzheimer's about what can help people that have Alzheimer's improve their cognitive function, does any of that overlap with things that we can do for people with traumatic brain injuries. I love that. It's the exact same. And thank you for pointing it out. It really is the exact same constellation of recommendations. And it is so old school. And uh, I'm sure family medicine doctors who took horses and buggies to clients' homes were giving the same kind of uh, advice 100 years ago that we're still giving, which is, It's partly nutrition, it's partly exercise, it's partly getting a good night's sleep, and it's partly stress management. And all of these lifestyle factors combine in ways that are extraordinary from a physiological perspective, right? And I confess to being the person who has always uh, scorned at my nutritionist colleagues, and I would think, like, well, how important can it be? Like, okay... Uh, could you pass me the Doritos, please? <laughs> <laughs> and now, come to find out, they were right all along. And it has everything to do with the physiology of the brain, especially after injury and especially in a circumstance where you have a vulnerable brain, as would be true for a diseased brain. So last question for you. What are your big burning questions about brain injuries? What's the next thing that you want to research? Uh So I feel so lucky here at DU because we have really the world's most extraordinary researchers. And uh, I have the luxury of working with them all the time. And I know them to be so humble. (laughs) I don't hog a lot of the limelight, but they're really changing the national stage. And on a global level, we have a lot of colleagues with appointments at um, global health institutes who are really changing the dialogue worldwide about brain injury and brain injury research. Uh, My real passion is, obviously, I've done a lot of work with prevention and injury prevention, and I still do some consultation on research design with helmet technology, for example. So uh, I think there is a great conversation to be had. We could do better at injury prevention. But my attention has traditionally been on this downstream model. So the folks who end up in criminal justice because they burn through all of their family and friends, or the uh, the women who end up 
homeless because they've been exposed to 20 years of interpersonal violence and hundreds of brain injuries in that context, and the aging adults for whom we have very little uh, resource available. So these are folks who may have dementing disease. So for example, Alzheimer's or Alzheimer's-related dementias. When we talk about football, we're talking about chronic traumatic encephalopathy. There's almost nothing available to those folks. So I've really been drawn to uh, addressing the vacuum of their treatment needs, and not only for them, but for the caregivers too. Great, well, thank you so much for joining us. Nicole, thank you for having me. To read more about Kim Gorgon's work or watch her TED Talk, visit our show notes at du.edu slash radioed. Be sure to subscribe and check back for new episodes every other Tuesday. Alyssa Hurst is our executive producer, Aaron Pendergast mixes our sound, James Swearingen arranged our theme, and Tamara Chapman is our managing editor. I'm Nicole Militello, and this is Radio Ed.